Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, with the Colorado River's water supply shrinking, farmers are turning to new technology in the hopes they can get by with less. And so it's just a uh, constant progression to try to use less water. We'll have more on that, and we hear about some of the state legislature's priorities ahead of this year's session. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Colorado's legislative session kicks off tomorrow, and lawmakers are vowing to pursue an expansive agenda with a particular focus on alleviating some of the financial burdens from the coronavirus pandemic. KUNC State Capitol reporter Scott Franz joins us now to talk about what the next four months might look like. Hey, Scott. Hey, Erin. So this week seems like a potentially complicated time to have hundreds of people return to the Capitol building. We all know how stuffy and crowded that building can get. And lawmakers, you know, here they are once again kicking things off at a time that coronavirus cases are spiking. How are they addressing things this time? Right. Well, there's some initial concern about the session based on where the pandemic is. Um, But I'm told they'll be using a lot of the same safety measures Um, that got them through the last two years, uh, minus those big plexiglass barriers they had between their desks last year. I'm I'm told those are definitely not coming back. Um, They will continue to require masks in public parts of the building. I think we'll see also several lawmakers voting and participating remotely again. This is already happening in other states that have come back in the last week. Um, But I think the big change this time will be a new focus on rapid testing. Lawmakers tell me that Anyone who wants a quick test, including members of the public, will have access to one at the Capitol. And I found that really interesting because we've heard so many people around the state are are struggling to find these things uh, as the demand for testing really surges. I also asked Majority Leader Denea Eskar, um, you know, how lawmakers are personally feeling about coming back right now. I think the world is a, is a play, is scary place to walk into these days, period, just because you don't know who's vaccinated. You don't know who's not vaccinated but I have faith in the vaccines. I am vaccinated, I am boosted, and I've done that for not only myself, but my family, my friends, and I feel like I'm really ready to do the work I need to do. Well, opening day, of course, is a chance for lawmakers to set their priorities with the first bills. What are we expecting those first ones will be? Yeah, I think right out of the gate, you'll see lawmakers pass several bipartisan bills um, to distribute about $1 billion of coronavirus relief money. Uh, This is money they've been sitting on from the federal government all summer. Um, They held dozens of hearings to decide how to spend it on two areas, affordable housing and mental health programming. And they specifically made these panels um, to be bipartisan to avoid Um, conflict and also make sure that, you know, there was broad support for the things they want to spend the money on. Right. Do we have a sense of what that affordable housing proposal looks like or hopes to accomplish? Yeah, so that will be $400 million. And and the biggest piece of that is is a new revolving loan fund that they say will help governments all across the state. Um, 
you know, get get affordable housing projects off the ground. You know, the, an example they gave was there's a, a large project just outside of Steamboat Springs right now um, on ranch land just a couple miles west of town that they want to um, build a huge project on. But there are lots of infrastructure costs because nothing's been developed out there. And they see this type of grant funding being able to, to help pay for some of those um, startup costs to get to get this project moving. Now, what about spending on wildfires, fire mitigation, things like that? This all feels very top of mind, of course, with the recent Marshall Fire. Definitely. You know, I talked to Senate Majority Leader Steve Finberg. He he represents Boulder County, um, and it's been a very tough year for him and his constituents. Um, you know, he tells me that, you know, it's it's dawning on him that lawmakers cannot stop every fire. You know, last year they bought uh, an expensive Blackhawk helicopter that's modified, you know, th- to be super fast and carry more water. And the idea was to, to put out fires before they grow into big ones. Um, you know, he says something like that, you know, might have had the biggest chance of helping. It, it hasn't been built yet. But um, instead, he's now thinking, you know, these these fires, we're going to see more of them and we can't stop every one. So he says he's going to look at policies like building codes and, and how, you know, what materials homes need to be built out of and, and more, you know, trying to be resilient and and learning to you know live in wildfire prone areas. And that's going to have to do with land use. That's going to have to do with how and where we build um, and in what what manner. Um, and those are conversations we're absolutely going to have. You know, as well as there's the general theme to continue looking at climate policy and and trying to you know, tackle the broader issues that that lead to things like this. Right. Well, Scott, this is, of course, also a big election year. Voters have a chance to decide whether to stick with Governor Jared Polis and his agenda in November. How do you think that will affect the tone of this session? Well, this really raises the stakes for everyone. You know, Republicans are trying to regain some um, piece of power here at the Capitol. You know, it's been years since they've controlled the chamber and I think they're going to use the session to try and make their case for for why voters should should give them more control of the agenda. You know, on the other hand, you know, Governor Polis is lobbying for the biggest budget request in state history, um, and there's new money for initiatives like reducing homelessness, which hasn't been a big focus for his um, administration in recent years. Um, you know, I also expect the the policy debates are going to be a lot more intense this year because, you know, everything is happening through the lens of election season. And the person in charge of trying to navigate the House through all of this uh, is Democratic House Speaker Alec Garnett. There's going to be flares, but 90 percent of the work that we do is bipartisan. You know, my door is always open. Uh, I really uh, strive to lead the chamber, both sides, uh, as fairly and um Uh, as openly as I can. And Garnett is right that most bills here end up being passed um, with bipartisan support. It's the ones they don't agree on, um, you know, that tend to make more headlines and and actually generate the the hours of debates that I'm sure will be keeping me um, in the Capitol building (laughs) through some very late nights this session. (laughs) Right. Hopefully not too many of those. Um, Speaking of this year's election, we also learned this week that Democratic Representative Ed Perlmutter is not going to seek re-election in the 7th Congressional District. Just this morning, I saw at least one state lawmaker, Brittany Pedersen, is considering running in that district. I'm wondering, how do announcements like this affect the legislative session, if at all? 
Well, it does add, you know, a wrinkle in things, um, you know, because election season is is coming up. And, um, you know, Senator Pedersen, though, has been in the legislature for a long time. And I think, you know, most immediately it's, um, you know, preparing for the possibility that, you know, if she does succeed, um, you know, of finding um, a new state lawmaker. And, um, you know, I think just the whole, I think, you know, these federal campaigns do tend to, um, you know, influence what happens under the the gold dome. You know, politics is very national, and I think we're going to see a lot of you know these issues that that people are campaigning on in the congressional districts um, also come up in policy debates here at the state level. Lastly, Scott, what are Republicans saying about the upcoming session? Well, I did reach out to Republican senators last week, and and they kind of held off on wanting to do um, interviews before the session. Instead, they're teasing a press conference they're having on opening day, um, where they say they'll reveal an agenda um, that they're calling the Republican commitment to Colorado. Um, they say it will include 40 bills. Um, and we had kind of a preview of it earlier this week when Democrats held a press conference on the west steps of the Capitol you know, outlining their agenda, Republicans said that they felt like a lot of their ideas were being copied, um, which is kind of an interesting dynamic heading into the session. Um, So yeah, it will be interesting to see what their initial priorities are. You know, last session, it was all about trying to um, rein in um, Governor Jared Polis's pandemic powers. Um, I don't see that coming up as much because Polis has kind of taken more of a a hands-off approach. You know, he's resisted the mask mandates and things even as case numbers surge. So um, yeah, we'll we'll find out shortly what, you know, what the big policy debates between the parties will be. Well, I look forward to learning more. Scott Franz is KUNC state capitol reporter. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. In the Colorado River Basin, agriculture accounts for about 80% of all the water used. As the river supply shrinks and some farms start to make cutbacks, many are wondering if new technology can help them use less water. KUNC's Alex Hager visited growers in one of the driest parts of the Southwest and has their story. It's a warm winter day in Yuma, Arizona, and the desert sun is beating down on a sea of low green fields. Matt McGuire looks out on neat rows of cauliflower and lettuce. Those are the main crops, but we have other crops. We're actually growing carrots, radishes, celery. McGuire is the chief agricultural um, officer for J.V. Smith Companies, which grows all this produce. Spring mix, spinach, you name it. You find it on the grocery shelf and it's a leafy green. It probably came from here. He says 80% of the country's wintertime vegetables come from this area, and the rows of veggies are striking in their perfection. The field is a corduroy of precision-cut stripes, and the dirt that holds the roots is chiseled into angles you could measure with a protractor. These laser-leveled fields are just one innovation that's come along all in the name of efficiency. This system is showing us so far when we're doing it, that uses half as much water as what we're using for sprinklers. And so it's just a uh, constant progression to try to use less water. They're trying to use less partly because someday they might be given less. Farms in other parts of Arizona are already seeing cutbacks to their allocation from the Colorado River due to drought that's straining the entire region. And at this rate, the cuts will hit more farms in the years ahead. Hope and pray for more rain, more snow, but we're trying to prepare for less water. 
Farms everywhere have long been adopting new technologies to help the bottom line, which right now includes using less water. Paul Brierley works on desert agriculture at the University of Arizona. I have farmers today that say, well, we're doing everything as good as can possibly be done. And, and I always say, let's look in 50 years and look back and we'll laugh at these pictures just as much as, as we laugh at the pictures from 50 years ago. He says that innovation includes complex weather data, mobile apps, drones and satellites, all to help measure and distribute water. This was something that um, a lot of money's gone into from a lot of sources. Uh, proactively, really. It's not because government said you you have less water this year. It's because the industry wanted to know how can we best figure out what's the right amount of water. New tech on farms throughout the Southwest can lead to less water applied to crops. But that doesn't always mean the water is being saved. Farmers are more interested in income from water. That's Frank Ward. He studies water policy and the economics of agriculture at New Mexico State University. They're more interested in what part of their water applied gets to the root zone. Uh, so, you know, conservation is less of an issue for the typical farmer than you might think. One common technique that appears to bring water use down is drip irrigation. Drip irrigation actually for the plant, you typically uses more water, depending on how you apply it. Uh, so your recharge to the aquifer goes way, way down. Ward co-authored a paper explaining how some of the most popular farm technologies don't actually decrease water use on a basin-wide scale, but they're still being adopted because... At an individual farm scale, it may look like it's conserving water because you're applying, you're applying a lot less, but the, uh, the research seems to be showing that shifts into drip irrigation are not conserving water, but they are raising farm income. So when it comes to the future of farming in an area with less water to go around, Ward says rising prices will mean more dedicated efforts to use less, eventually grow less, and... Any of those areas where you have heavy urban pressure on water use and where you have water trading, you would probably expect farmers to gradually rent or transfer their water from farms into cities. And those realities may be on the way for parts of the Colorado River Basin. Climate scientists are projecting a warm and dry future where dropping reservoir levels mean more mandatory cutbacks. In Yuma, Arizona, I'm Alex Hager, KUNC. Listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. In the aftermath of the most destructive fire in Colorado's history, many experts contend that urban and suburban neighborhoods are vulnerable as the climate grows warmer. The wind-driven Marshall Fire ignited late in the year on December 30th and destroyed more than a thousand structures, most of them homes in the Boulder County communities of Louisville and Superior. Jennifer Balch is a fire scientist at the University of Colorado Boulder. She says what made the Marshall Fire such a catastrophic event is a confluence of several factors, including the warm, dry fall and winter, an abundance of fuels in the form of tinder dry grasses, and a spark to ignite the fire. And we had all three of those for this event. But what made it a, a disaster are two other things. One, there were a lot of homes in the way, and we had very high winds. She notes that over the last two decades, there's been a surge in new development across the West, and in particular, places like Colorado's Front Range. 
between the 90s and today, um, there were thousands of homes that were built kind of in the superior area and neighborhoods. And that's true across the West. We've seen increasing development. And that's important in the context of Colorado because although Colorado is a beautiful place, it's also a very flammable place. Our grasses, our shrubs, our trees are all very flammable and essentially they're dry for large chunks of the year and those chunks of the year are getting longer with climate change. So we have two things happening simultaneously. We have more and more people living in flammable places and we have a context and a climate that's getting warmer and making our flammable vegetation flammable for longer periods of time. And I can also dig in a little bit more on the the climate change piece, which I think is really important. And, you know, the warming conditions that we saw through the fall and the winter are consistent with the global trend in increasing temperature and the increasing temperatures across the West. We've seen a two degree Fahrenheit increase across the Western U.S. over the last century plus. And that trend is expected to continue. And why this is really important for fires and understanding fires is because it takes just a little bit of warming to lead to a lot more burning. Um, Since the 1980s, we've seen a doubling of the forests that have burned since, uh, since the early 1980s, and that's directly linked to an increase in temperature. Balch says it's concerning to her and fellow researchers that the rising demand for housing in these fire prone areas is potentially putting a lot of homes in harm's way. We did work to try and document what the what the risk is to homes, and we essentially found that over the last two decades, there were over a million homes that were within wildfire boundaries. It's essentially the black burned areas that are within wildfires. And even more concerning than that, we found that there were f- another 59 million homes that were within a kilometer of those wildfire boundaries. So there are a lot of homes at risk across the Western U.S. and across the U.S. in general. You know, from my, from where I sit and being a fire scientist for 20 years now, it's very concerning to me the risk that we're taking on. And I think one of the key lessons out of the Marshall Fire is that we we didn't know how big the wildland-urban interface actually was, and it's it's bigger than we thought. And by wildland-urban interface, I mean where homes intermingle with flammable vegetation. You know, I think many of us thought that it would never occur in suburbia and kind of urban areas. But what we what we learned is that, you know, what we build with and how we build into flammable places matters a lot. In the wake of wildfire, discussions usually follow around how to build communities that are resilient to natural disasters and how to incorporate buildings that are more fire-resistant. Some of these policy discussions will likely happen at the state capitol this session. Balch says there are plenty of practical considerations that should be taken into account. You know, there's actually a lot we can do um, to mitigate our risks. So some of the things... Like, for example, we have floodplain maps that help us make decisions about development and insurance, but we don't have equivalent firescape maps across the nation that help to inform insurance and development decisions in the same way. Um, We also can do a lot to build fire-resistant homes rather than flammable ones. You know, I think there's an important lesson here, too, in that what homes are built out of makes a big difference. Um, Wood siding, asphalt roofing, Um, wooden decks. 
these are all things that make homes more uh, vulnerable to fire. Um, mitigating the fuels in and around homes and neighborhoods, um, thinking about our open spaces and how fuels in our open spaces may put people and homes at risk and how we can mitigate those um, those fuels is important. You know, things that people don't necessarily think about, like, you know, do you have leaves in your gutters um, that could catch fire and catch your, your roof on fire? Um, the venting for roofing is actually one key way that burning embers kind of move into a home and, and catch it on fire. So just the mesh size on roof vents can actually make a big difference in terms of keeping flaming embers out. Um, mitigating the fuels in and around your property. So um, how much grass do you have around? How many shrubs? How many trees are close to your home? Um, are all important things that we need to think about when we um, think about creating defensible space. But in addition to the way we construct homes and neighborhoods, Balch also says there needs to be more awareness, especially on red flag days when winds are high, that small actions we do in our everyday lives can spark a disastrous blaze. Across the U.S., we showed that over 84% of our wildfires are actually started by people. And the single day of the year with the most number of human-caused wildfires is July 4th. Um, and it's related to our celebrations and our and our fireworks. Um, over 7,000 events started on that day over a roughly two-decade period. And I like to say that we need Smokey Bear in the suburbs. You know, we need to think about how our daily activities, using lawn equipment, driving off the side of the road into tall grass with a hot tailpipe, um, a cigarette butt, campfires, um, fireworks. These are all ways that we contribute to ignitions, and we don't think about it um, until it's too late. And um, there's a lot we can do to better message around, you know, hey, one less spark, one less ignition source. Because at this time of year, in the middle of winter, we don't have lightning. There's no natural source of ignitions at this time of year. Balch says a winter wildfire is still a fairly unusual occurrence, although she notes that last year's Cameron Peak fire, which started in the summer, wasn't fully out until early December when snow extinguished it. But a warming climate will make these fires, outside the typical fire season, much more common. You know, if this fire is not a smoking gun for climate change, like, I don't know what is. You know, the fact that we had the warmest period on record from June through December going back to the 1960s, and knowing that the trends are showing a, a clear link between warming and increased wildfires. This is consistent with that trend. And so we're going to, you know, we're all looking for who to blame here, but I think the, the big picture is we're all culpable in this through our pumping of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and warming our planet, like we are seeing more wildfires across the West as a function of climate change. No question. Even though Jennifer Balch spends so much of her days thinking about wildfires, experiencing one so close to home hit harder. Part of the Marshall Fire for me too is just, it's one thing to study wildfires and then it's another thing to see them in your own backyard. You know, that fire started a couple miles from my house and I now have staff and friends and colleagues who have lost homes and who I consider to be climate refugees, really. And it's, you know, it's a hard time. And I think, you know, Colorado is strong 
and there's great intention and will to build back and to um, invest in our neighborhoods and, and help people build back. But I just hope that we build back smarter and help um, help our communities build back in a way that is more resilient and that does heed um, some of the risk that we're facing as a function of climate change. It may not be possible for everyone impacted by the Marshall Fire to rebuild in the same community. The coronavirus pandemic has impacted the cost of housing materials, and shortages of both labor and raw materials may make rebuilding slower and more expensive. In addition, some experts predict that the climate crisis will precipitate a wave of people being displaced by flooding, extreme heat, and, of course, wildfires. Balch says it's important to keep all this in mind, both for new development and for fire-impacted communities looking to rebuild. You know, as we're assessing our risk and our collective risk, I think it's also really important for us to understand who's most vulnerable. And I don't think we have a good handle on that in terms of fire risk. We do know that there are 13 million socially vulnerable Americans living with high wildfire risk right now today. And, you know, we need to think about who's whose homes are in the way and whose lungs are in the way, frankly. There were tens of millions of people who were exposed to harmful smoke from wildfires over the past couple of summers. And, you know, we we haven't done a good job of assessing who's at highest risk and how we can, can best help them in these times of disaster. Jennifer Balch is a fire scientist at the University of Colorado Boulder. She spoke with KUNC's Robin Vincent. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll hear how the closure of Louisville's Avista Adventist Hospital is impacting the community as it recovers from the Marshall Fire amid an uptick in COVID-19 hospitalizations. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Our digital editor is Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.